I think it's safe to say that most everyone would agree that a society whereby its members treat one another with respect, dignity, compassion, and empathy, all of which fosters cooperation, delivers the goods when it comes to justice in the form of not just equal rights, but equal opportunity to pursue advancement by working hard, studying hard, and living wisely. These should not be controversial thoughts, in my opinion. Are there views pertaining to various socio-political, socio-economic systems that vary widely on the best way to get there? Of course. We need to have that dialogue and be willing to listen to and work with one another on things we have to do as a society to make this possible for everyone. And that is certainly going to include my willingness to humbly accept the fact that I have a lot to learn in changes I have to make in order to be an active part of the solution. I hope everyone hearing this would echo a similar sentiment. Fact is, we all have to own our part in making things better for all. But if lasting change for the better is going to occur, something else has to happen before we can fully address the specifics pertaining to particular policies. We have to get a handle on the fundamentals required for any society especially one as diverse as the U.S., that desires to move in the direction of civility and justice. How can we rise above the tension, anger, hate, bigotry, unbridled selfishness, indifference, apathy, and the resulting chaos that has erupted around the nation? Where does the capacity to move in a different direction come from? What is needed to fuel an overhaul of the national consciousness such that a spirit of acceptance, inclusion, compassion, and cooperation prevails? Is it best handled by elected officials and legislators from within what we hope are the halls of justice, or those ensconced in the ivory towers of the academy? Are laws and political maneuvers the solution, or is it far deeper, much more profound? Ideas regarding programs, policies, and legislation are essential, but what's most at issue is about 18 inches lower than where our thinking is centered. It's not the head but the heart. Do a survey of ancient wisdom literature from various traditions and cultures around the globe, and you'll find that many writers refer to an element unique to humanity, that which makes us human, and designate it as or something like the soul. The writers of the Hebrew scriptures going back approximately 3,500 years used the term nefesh and the Greek translators of those same manuscripts, as well as those that make up the Christian New Testament, used the term psyche to describe the immaterial aspect of a person that isn't just a reflection of brain states or activities within the cerebral cortex. Islam's sacred writings, first the Quran, and secondly, the Hadith teaches a somewhat similar view, and in two of Hinduism's most sacred writings, the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads, the soul, or Atman, is considered to be the very source of consciousness and resides in the region of the heart. 
Isn't it interesting that most of the world's spiritual traditions plainly state that human beings are more than just the physical body? Of course, none of these writers had access to the information we now have from the field of neuroscience, but even with our advanced understanding of brain function that includes a map of where in our bio hard drives various processes occur, language, problem solving, certain emotions, etc., we still do not have a clear understanding of exactly what thoughts, such as memories, hopes, dreams, and the longings for love, justice, and dignity really are. What most all of us do sense, what humanity has always sensed, is that there is something about us in our thought lives that transcends just gene-driven neural activity in the lump of molecules encased in that skull of ours. Is that intuition a symptom of a higher reality, or is it nothing more than our DNA tricking us as part of some evolution-spawned survival strategy? For sure, there is no denying that our physical makeup has much to do with thought processes, but the fact remains that most people around the world act on the intuition that we are more than just highly complex chunks of molecules roaming the planet and moving in accordance with impulses that have only to do with our place within the evolutionary hierarchy. So go back to the concept of the soul that those ancient writers often referred to as, or at least situated in, the heart. The writers of the sacred scriptures of the Judeo-Christian tradition considered the heart to be the seat of a person's mind, will, and emotions, the very center of what it is to be a person. That is why the word for heart or some derivative occurs well over 800 times in the Bible. Listen to a few perspectives. King Solomon wrote the following in some of his wisdom literature. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23. A heart at peace gives life to the body. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 30. Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Proverbs chapter 18 verse 12. As water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 19. He God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11. The prophet Jeremiah wrote, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every person according to their ways, according to the fruit of their deeds. Jeremiah chapter 17 verses 9 and 10. Jesus, as recorded by eyewitnesses or those who interviewed them, offered the following. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Matthew chapter 5 verse 8. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew chapter 6 verse 21. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. 
Luke chapter 6 verse 45. The Apostle Paul wrote, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Colossians chapter 3 verse 23. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5. The apostle Peter wrote, All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 8. And the apostle John wrote, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 1 John chapter 3 verse 17. What these ancient wisdom writers taught was that what we think, say, and do are reflections of our heart's condition. And it's because the human heart is fatally flawed that things have gone sideways and the result is the kind of dysfunction and chaos we are all witnessing and often get caught up in. Racism, tribalism, sectarianism, xenophobia, discrimination, greed, and indifference regarding the plight of others are all traceable to a compromised heart. And if you were to take the time to read and reflect upon Jesus' teachings, you will collide with the concept that what is needed is not merely a bit of reform, a slight change of attitude, a few minor tweaks and adjustments here and there, but a change so radical that he referred to it as being reborn. When Jesus made that statement to a religious leader who had come to pick his brain about the ideas and truth claims he was openly declaring on the streets in Jerusalem, you can find that convo in the Gospel of John chapter 3, by the way, he, Jesus, was echoing what the prophet Ezekiel had written almost 600 years before. I, God, will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you. Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 26 and 27. The core of Christ's teaching isn't centered on the afterlife, making sure you've got that golden ticket to get into heaven. It's most concerned with during life. What a person does in this realm. It's about being moved by God to love him and try your best each day to live out his plan for humanity. And where that is most pronounced concerns how a person relates to and treats other people, all other people, regardless of any classification that can be assigned to a person. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote about this concept. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. 
Anyone who claims to fully trust in and be a follower of Jesus Christ is to act on the compulsion to live in accordance with his teachings and example. That many who have made that claim do not exemplify the manner of Christ is on them, not Jesus. Of course, even fully devoted followers willing to embrace and put into practice the sort of sacrificial love that leads one to put others first, forgive and pray for those who make your life difficult, and humble yourself so as to take the initiative to stoop down and wash another person's feet are going to have times of struggle with anger, fear, resentment, pride. After all, humans are flawed. Jesus made it crystal clear that he came to take the sin of the world, my failures, your failures, upon himself so that the breach between God and humanity could be repaired, which was also to set in motion the restoration and reconciliation that can lead to a renewed brotherhood, sisterhood of humanity. Read through the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that chronicle the public ministry of Jesus, and you'll see that he reaches across every barrier imaginable, ethnic, gender, social, cultural, to invite people to a new way to live. That can be a blueprint for a better society, right? If that is to happen, then what is needed isn't just new laws and policies, although the rule of law and sound policies are absolutely essential for any society to thrive. What we need are new hearts. We need a heart transplant. In order for people to lay down their prejudices, their grievances against one another, and instead start loving, helping, being helped by, and cooperating with one another, something or a set of somethings, has to happen at more than just head level. It's got to go down into the core of who we are, which is something far more than just highly advanced biological machines programmed by gene-driven algorithms with thinking patterns customized for survival of the fittest. Indeed, the human brain is the most complex thing by light years we know of in the universe. But how do we account for the intricacies of our thought lives purely on the basis of biology? How can the longing for the virtues that mark what almost all of us see as the societal ideal, equality, justice, liberty, dignity for all, humility to not just understand but sacrifice for those who aren't even in our tribe, be anchored to a purely mechanical existence that is the product of unguided, randomly occurring processes devoid of thinking or caring, capacities prized by almost everyone in every society. That beings who not only have the capability to, but are rather obsessed with reflecting upon concepts related to life's meaning and how best to have a meaningful life, are nothing more than the result of a happy chemical accident that emerged from the seething anarchy of the elementary particles and fundamental forces, does not seem to me to have true explanatory power for how we experience life. For instance, why are concepts related to ethics and virtue seemingly wired into the DNA of our ideas on how best to live? It seems to me that the most reasonable way to account for the fact that we are beings who intensely desire fairness, justice, goodness, and hope that is attached 
to fairly universal understandings of right and wrong is that these qualities are symptoms of a higher reality. I think this to be a rational conclusion that, although not provable in the empirical sense, is logically consistent. And if that's the case, then what and who we are is infinitely more beautiful and meaningful than just organisms driven by our biology, but beings with thoughts and longings that emerge from a soul. So if we are not just bodies, but persons who have bodies, then we should be willing to acknowledge that affecting change is going to involve more than just changing someone else's or our own mind. Think about it like this. The heart can respond to certain things that don't necessarily require a complete change of mind. And it is often a changed or even softened heart that can loosen up the gatekeeper that is one's critical thinking regarding things such that a willingness to humbly assess matters can develop. Perhaps someone across the political aisle will never fully agree with your views regarding the inherent complexities of economic theory as it relates to the socio-political realm. But if both parties are intentional at the very outset of their interaction to view one another as human beings worthy of brotherly, sisterly love, dignity, and respect, and that the only way to succeed in making things better for everyone then the stage is set for a fruitful dialogue that includes the willingness to not just hear one another, but listen intently and patiently. That's the roadmap to the kind of cooperation that gets stuff done that can actually improve things in our cities, in our communities. Isn't that what we're after? We might be at different spots on certain spectrums, politically, culturally, but when it comes to a person being worthy of justice and love, there is no spectrum. Viewing everyone that way and then acting on it is the key to flourishing as a people, as a nation. And part of that process involves humbly owning my own shortcomings and short-sightedness when it comes to the struggles others have had and still have in my land. I have to be willing to not just honestly assess my attitudes toward my brothers and sisters around me, but also take measures to root out the complacency, indifference, and apathy that may be part of my makeup. Isn't it easy and even natural to just focus on the self and how comfortable you can make or keep things in your life? But I believe that that's not the best way to be human, and I take my cues from Jesus and his earliest followers, including his half-brother James. Jesus once said, and I quote, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? And his brother wrote, and I quote, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Those are convicting, challenging words that drive the point home that it starts with me. 
the best way to be me is to unleash my soul on perspectives and activities that lead to a healthier and more harmonious community. That doesn't preclude much time and effort spent tending to life's logistics, work, family, personal growth, physical and emotional health, since the more capable and stronger I am in all the dimensions of capability and strength, the more able I am to help others. So I'm going to keep getting after it. Be successful in your studies and work. Be wise in regard to how you manage your finances and take care of your body, which is the housing of your mind, your soul. And then go out there and leverage your strengths and your blessings to make things better. And one path to that is by humbling yourself to listen intently to others, try to empathize and understand, and then pay your wins forward. We can all be agents for the kind of change that can foster healing, wholeness, and goodwill. Let's get after it the best we can wherever we're planted and then watch it spread and take hold all over this nation. It is doable.